don't you go ahead and take a seat. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that and meet me in the book of James. Hey, as you're doing that, I want to recognize something that I did at the very beginning, but I'll do it again. It's, um, if you didn't know, today is 9-11, where we remember one of the most horrific days in our country's, at least modern history. And I just want to recognize the fact that um, I, I prayed about this earlier, and let me just say it again, is God is absolutely sovereign. And even in the midst of looking back and remembering some tragedy, what we do is we don't just look back, we look forward to the fact that we have a God who is going to reconcile all of this. We look forward to the Revelation 21 moment where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. You see, 20-something years ago on that horrific day, it was a picture of what many of us have experienced over and over again in little microcosms of tragedy. And, and I think that the same hope that we had then, the unity that we functioned around then, is what we need to remember today, is that's, that Jesus is bigger than anything that could ever happen. So as you remember, as you look back, it's good to remember, but it's also good to look forward to the hope that we have in the gospel. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of perspective as you do that. Again, James chapter 2. We're going through a sermon series through the book of James that is going to last us until the beginning parts of November, and today is one of those messages, if I'm honest, is going to challenge some of you quite a bit. Uh, I need you, if you will, to hang with me, buckle up, and, and get ready, because this is going to be some tough stuff. James does not hold back in, in the entire book. It is one thing after another. I told you early on that there are 54 imperative statements in these short five chapters, 54 times James is going to say, do this, do that, do this, do that. He doesn't waste a lot of time telling you why. He just says, do it. Well, this is one of those days. One of, one of my favorite stories ever uh, comes from a guy. It's the story of a guy named William Booth. There's many reasons why I love his story. The first is because he exemplifies a strong name, a courageous name. Like, I, I don't know if I've ever met a William I didn't like. So if you didn't know, that's my name. It's just a joke. By the way, somebody on our staff was like, are you talking about the guy who shot Abraham Lincoln? No, that is not William Booth, okay? <laughs> Just so you know, William Booth was a pastor in the 1860s in England, but he wasn't a very popular pastor. One day, he had walked into his church in the Church of England with a bunch of people that, that did not fit the social class of the time. They were, they were people that weren't very liked. They were people like prostitutes and drug addicts, and he walked into that church with them, and he was told to leave. He was told, you can get out, and you can take them out with you. For eight years, William Booth lived in poverty, and he became rejected by the church. At some point during that time, though, he became convinced that this is what God had called him to do. So William took the rest of his life to share the gospel with people who needed to hear it. He started a movement where thousands of people among the poorest of the poor in East London came to faith. Again, these people came to faith in droves, and these were the people that society did not like. They were the people that were rejected. Think about it. They were prostitutes and drug addicts. They were felons who committed very bad crimes. They were Alabama fans. Right? We all agreed that nobody likes them. William preached at gravesides and, and in graveyards where these people were gathered. He preached on street corners and thousands of people came to faith. At one point, at one point, he had hired and reconciled so many of these people that they gave him the name the General of God's Army. A little later on, in 1874, there was a newspaper article published about William Booth. 
And the newspaper article's title was The Christian General of God's Volunteer Army. Well, William took that newspaper article and he crossed out Volunteer Army and he wrote Salvation Army in it. William was the founder of the Salvation Army, and this movement began when he abandoned the cultural mandates of his day, and he lived for Jesus' kingdom mandates instead. He, he made a massive impact, but one of the things you'll notice about a guy like him is he did it sacrificing himself. See, maybe, maybe, maybe today you come into this room, and, and maybe your thought process is, like, I want to live for something bigger than myself. I, I don't know if you've ever had that existential kind of crisis in your mind of like, what am I doing? Is my job worth it? Am I living for the right things? Am, am I, or am I just settling? Maybe you've come in here wanting that. Maybe you've wanted to invest your life into something that matters. And you want to start creating those, if you will, like we talked about last week, these eulogy virtues, the, the things that you'll be remembered for. We see we all, I think we all want to live for something bigger than ourselves. We want to spend our lives on something that matters. Now listen, God has something for you, I think, in the book of James that he's going to spell out one of the most simple and practical ways to have a life that has a lasting impact beyond yourself, and it's not going to be easy. But here's my warning. If you ever survey history, here's what you'll find. People who tend to make the greatest impact on this world tend to be rejected by culture. They tend to sacrifice a lot. Just think about the people in American history, like Martin Luther King Jr. I, 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 we, we idolize Martin Luther King Jr., and I don't think we recognize he was hated during his time by contemporaries. We tend to look at these people because they make great impact because they cut against the grain of culture, because they live for a better kingdom. The question I have for you is this, is do you want to be known and liked, or do you want to change the world? Oftentimes, those two things don't go hand in hand. Church, I want us to be world changers. And today, again, I'm going to lay out a simple and strategic way for us to make a world-changing impact, and it's in James chapter 2. Here's what he says in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Historians will tell us that the first century church was filled with outcasts and social rejects. Now, what I find fascinating is that these early Christians had a tendency to look down on their peers, the social rejects, to look up to a social class. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. Culture had ingrained these beliefs so much that they deeply believed that if you had something, you were better. So even those people in the social rejection class looked down on themselves. It, it shaped their identity so much. Y'all, that's what happens even today. Social status has a way of making us believe that we're better than the people around us. It says things like this, and I'm sure you've heard these things before. We got to where we are because we are inherently better than those who don't have it. Think about it. Think about it. We're obviously more successful because we worked harder, right? I deserve what I have because I worked harder to get to where I am. I am smarter than everybody else, and I worked really hard, and that's why I got into the elite institution. I live in the neighborhood that I live in with the people that I live with because obviously we are hardworking individuals, and the people on the other side of the tracks aren't. Now, we might not say that out loud, but a lot of us think it. Y'all, that narrative isn't true. By, uh, that, it's not true, and it's not new. It's what was going on in the first century church that these believers had bought this lie. It was the same thing that was going on in the Church of England in the 1800s when they bought the lie. You know, the first, the first church I ever worked at was in South Georgia. 
And let me just, if you don't know this, I, I don't fit very well in South Georgia. All right, why are you laughing? Like, I wear tight jeans. I root for the University of Florida. I put more product in my hair than the environmentalists want you to. Okay? If you're tracking with me, these, this caricature of me in South Georgia don't fit very well. Well, I didn't understand the unwritten rules of the time. And, and so, and this is a sad but true story. So I invited a bunch of kids from the community over for our Wednesday night dinner. And y'all, the little old ladies in that church loved me until the little black kids walked into the church with me. And I was told, you need to take the food and go outside and eat with them. They're not, they're not allowed in here. Now, that didn't fly with me. That kind of partiality, I, I couldn't even believe it still existed. And yet, it was what was going on right in front of my eyes. You see, partiality, it takes all different faces and kinds. But the reality is, is we show partiality all the time when we set an identity for people. That word partiality, it literally means to see a half face. It means to see what you want to see. You don't see the whole person. It, it, it's, it's to see, it, literally, it, it's, it's a prejudgment. It's a prejudice. It's a predisposition. It's the parts that we like to see about the person because the cultural mandates of our time tend to see those things and we tend to look better than them. You know, it happens all the time. It might not be that extreme, but think about it. Can you say Notre Dame football? You can't say Notre Dame football and not see partiality, can you? Media attention all the time. How about the VIP Tesla parking at the Avalon, right? Have you ever tried to park in the valet parking? Look, if you have a car like mine, they drive your car to the back so that the Lamborghini has a spot in the front, right? I, I wanted so badly with my, my beat-up 2010 Camry just to pull it right in there, back it in, and be like, here's my tip, don't move it. But it doesn't work that way. Have you ever been to a wedding? If you're single and you've been to a wedding, you get relegated to the kids' table, don't you? How about this? All studies will show you this. If you have a stereotypical African-American name, you are less likely to get an interview if that is put on your resume. Y'all, that doesn't change either. If Nelia was telling me when she first moved here from South Africa, people would not talk to her, and they told her, and they talked to her like she was uneducated until they found out that she had more degrees than a thermometer, and then they brought her into the social class. I, I'm not kidding you. Nelia really has like six degrees. I, I, it, it blows my mind. But she said as soon as they found out that she was not of that class, that she was actually educated, things changed. Again, we do this. Think about the governor of Georgia. Whether or not you like his politics or not, how many people think that he's ignorant because he has an accent that doesn't match the one that we think? Y'all, we show partiality all the time, but Christianity and partiality have to be like oil and water. You get that, right? In this world, there might be systems and hierarchies, but there can't be in the church. There can't be. I think it's really fascinating that James uses the phrasing when he opens up this section. Here's what he says again. My brothers, I want to break this down. Show no partiality as you hold to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Look, look, look at it. First one, my brothers. He's talking to believers. Can, can I just tell you why this is so important? The church has to be the great equalizer. When you walk into a church, you gather with a family of people that outside tend to have nothing in common. Do you realize that this first century church was made up of Jews and Gentiles who hated one another, and they were brought together in a commonality of the gospel, that were, they were able to take what society said about them and set it aside and come together over something bigger than themselves? 
Listen, the key to not showing partiality is to be united around something that's bigger than yourselves. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and that means we are united around the gospel. And here's what I mean. You know, unity is not uniformity. Write this down. We are after one, uh, we are after same, uh, we are not after sameness, we are after oneness. The, the beauty is that we all bring these different cultural things into here, but we're united around something bigger than ourselves. Now listen to what he says. He literally says, as you practice your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can't show favoritism. Faith in Jesus and favoritism don't go together. Why? Because of the gospel. That's what James says when he uses that language, Lord of glory. Lord literally means ruler. Glory means bigness. Jesus is the ruler of the biggest thing ever, the entire universe. He is bigger than anything you could ever imagine. He's bigger than your greatest fears. He's bigger than your greatest hopes. Because Jesus is so big and because Jesus is so glorious, everything, everything comes subjected under him. And watch what he does. The gospel says he emptied himself. He didn't show any partiality. See, at the foot of the cross, we are all equal. The gospel says that there is no favoritism at all. That it brings people from every tribe, tongue, and nation together. Religion, religion says you can earn your way to salvation. Religion says that if your goodness, if you will, tips the scales just enough, well, then you are going to be right before God. What religion says is that, that because you did your job, it creates a cosmic competition between those who haven't. Like, like you might be sitting there thinking, well, I know I'm not the best guy in the world, but I'm not as bad as that guy. And by the way, that guy's always Hitler for some reason. Congratulations. You're not as bad as Hitler. I hope you're not as bad as Hitler. But you do realize that when you compare yourself to one another, what you end up doing is you set up partiality. You set up cosmic scales where I look and I say, well, I've achieved more than him, so I must be better than him. Y'all, the gospel says that you ain't any better than anybody, including Hitler, honestly. That at the foot of the cross, we all need grace. Listen to what James says in verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you commit adultery but you don't murder, you become a transgressor of the law. You're tracking with what James is saying. If you break one law, you're a lawbreaker. That's what he means. And that means if you're a lawbreaker, that means we all need the undeserved grace of the gospel. Here's the point. The reason that believers can't show partiality is because the gospel says that you aren't any better than anyone else. See, it doesn't matter where you went to school or the job title that you have. It really doesn't matter what your background is and if your background, if, if you will, if your background check came back clear, if it came back felon. According to the gospel, we are grace people because we are people who have received unconditional love. And when the church... When the church acts like everybody else, we communicate with our actions and with our lives that we don't understand the gospel because we're creating a hierarchy that Jesus came to tear down. Let me introduce you to a new phrase that might be the most important phrase in the Christian life. You ready for it? Put it up on the screen. Downward mobility. If you want to be a world changer, a gospel people, you have to focus on downward mobility. See, gospel people are people who are known for emptying themselves of their social status to create equity. Here it is. Here it is. Here's the point that most of you are not going to like. Here's the point that's going to be a tough pill to swallow. The gospel says that everything you have, everything you have is because of God's grace. Listen, I get that you worked hard. I'm not going to downplay that you worked hard, that you're a good steward of that, but, but that's just it. 
you're a good steward of the gifts that God has given you, right? Think about it. Yes, you worked hard to get the degree that you have. I realize that. But do you realize that you have a mind capable of learning because of God's grace? You could have been born with a mental disability that would not have given you the ability to learn. Yes, I, I, I realize that your networking, your sacrifices, and all the things and the hard work that you did to get to where you are matters, but do you realize that maybe some of that is because of the place that you were born and the time that you were born and in the environment that you were born in? And You could have been born in sub-Saharan Africa to a group of parents who had HIV that didn't even give you a chance to live. Like, do you realize that everything you have is a gift from God? Y'all, I was a Division I athlete. Did I work hard? Yep. Do you know what I didn't do? I didn't cause myself to be six foot three, 230 pounds. Right? Genetics is what gave me the ability to do that. Listen, what, why does all that matter? When you get, when you get that everything you have is from the undeserved grace of God, do you know what it does? It postures your life in a sense of humility and gratitude. It, it positions you to look up instead of down. Look, when you're always looking down on others, it's really hard to look up to God. We have to recognize that it's God's grace. That's what God's people have always been about. From the very first pages of Scripture, God's people were about being different and creating a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom where they were understood to set themselves apart by the grace of God because they didn't deserve anything that God gave them. Y'all, the tiniest nation was Israel, surrounded by, at that time, a bunch of superpowers. If you ever look at the geography, they lived in this fertile crescent where they had enemies to their north and their south. They had Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and the Syrians. They, they were these small people, the Philistines and all these major superpowers around them. And yet God used the tiniest and the least of these to do something incredible. You know what God told the nation of Israel to do? It's pretty crazy. He told them, hey, as you farm your, your, your agrarian society, I want you to leave the edges of your field so that the poorest of the poor can actually have something to eat. Yeah, I know you worked real hard. I know you cultivated that land. I know you sacrificed everything and your family went through all that. But here's what I want you to do is I want you to be a different kind of people. Because you could do everything you thought you were going to do and you could do it all right. But if I didn't bring the rain, you wouldn't have the crops. So I still made it grow. He says, don't take advantage of the poor and every seven years forgive their debts. He told them to serve one another. Jesus said the last will be first and the first will be last. Listen how Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 8, 9 as he talks about Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and yes, he was rich, he owned it all, right? He created the universe and everything in it. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. Downward mobility. The king of the universe stepped off of his throne in heaven. He put on flesh and subjected himself to his own creation. The one who owned everything was born in a barn because there was no place for him and his family even in a hotel. He was born among barn animals. He grew up a poor trademan. He had nothing. He even said that he was homeless. He said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He grew up a homeless day laborer being tortured and killed so that you and I could be rich. Y'all, here's the secret to being a world changer. It's understanding that your ability to practice downward mobility gives dignity to a group of people that the world says doesn't deserve dignity. When you live different, you elevate people. You give hope to the hopeless. You live out the gospel. You see, the gospel message is what empowers people to change this world. 
It communicates a value, a truth statement that you were made in the image of God. And that means that you deserve, you, you deserve an identity by your creator, not by your culture. So brothers and sisters, if we are going to be gospel people, we have to be people who aren't owned by our culture. We've got to be people who set aside our social status to elevate others. Verse 2, for if a man wearing gold rings and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also come in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit at my feet, or you come sit in the front row with the pastor. Have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become a judge of evil thoughts? See, here is what was happening in first century Roman culture. A, a sign that you were of the social status and class is that you would wear gold rings all over your fingers. The Roman philosopher Seneca, he said it like this, we adorn our fingers with rings and gems that fit every joint. It was a social symbol. It was a status symbol. It, it's not much different than the type of car that we drive. You realize that you can drive an F-150 that costs the same amount as the Mercedes, and yet there's a status symbol that's attached to one and not the other. It's, it's the brand of clothes that we wear, right? It, it communicates something. And when those people walk into your church, they tend to demand, command attention. Not, not that they're saying, look at me, but we tend to draw ourselves to them. Here's the problem with that. When we give favoritism to people who have stuff, we become our own judge, and listen, it normally doesn't look as blatantly obvious as James' example, but we do the same things. When we only hang out with people in our homogenous social class because it's just easier because we have all things in common with them, we do the same things. When we fill our church boards with successful business people who don't meet the requirements of 1 Timothy chapter 3, but what they do is they have pragmatic abilities to, to create a culture, we do the same thing. When we're, when we're controlled by people who fund our budget and we praise those people only because they give the biggest gifts, which by the way, they normally tend to have the lowest percentage of generosity, we do the same thing. So listen to what James says. Again, verse 4, have you not then made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He's saying, don't you see your wicked motivations? By the way, what's fascinating is that word shabby there that he uses for shabby clothing. It, it actually means to be defiled or to be outcast. See, what he's saying, he's describing these people. He's saying that they are the unclean ones. They're the worst of the worst. They couldn't even go into the temple because they were ceremonially unclean. They were rejected. You know what they're a picture of? They're a picture of our Savior, Jesus. Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders of our day too, of his day. Jesus was killed outside of the camp because he wasn't even worthy to be in the camp with everybody else. Here's the amazing part. James wants you to see that Jesus, his brother and Lord, wouldn't have been of the social status of our day. And many of us, if we weren't careful, we would have missed our Savior just like the first century Jews did. You have to ask yourself some deeper questions. Some questions, why do we care so much about what people think about us or who we hang out with? That, 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 that phrasing, evil thoughts, it goes again to motivation. What is your motivation and why do you care? Why do we care about being around the haves so much more than the have-nots? You know, when there was racial injustice in the 1960s, Martin Luther King Jr., he said this. He, well, he did not say this. He did not say, hey, let's just show people Christianity is the opioid, opiate of the people, like Karl Marx did. Let's just, let's just drug them with it. No, what does he say? Martin Luther King Jr. said we had to go back to a truer Christianity, 
A Christianity that communicates the kingdom of God is one with, that checks its social status at the door and realizes that at the foot of the cross, we are all in need of amazing grace. One of the most heartbreaking pictures I've ever seen of partiality uh, was when I was in Frankfurt, Germany, visiting my family there. We were walking through downtown Frankfurt, and there's this beautiful Catholic church. And on the door of the church, it said in about five different languages, no visitors welcome. And sitting right in front of that was a homeless man begging for food as people would walk right over him to walk into the church building to look at this empty tomb of stained glass windows. And, and, and to me, it was a picture of the injustice of what church is not supposed to be. Y'all, if we're not careful, our lives will communicate the same exact message. We'll become a symbol of the gospel, but we'll lack the resources necessary to actually make any kind of a change. Our message will be one that says that we are a place of grace, and yet we are a place that receives it without giving it. Our bodies will be temples that look good on the outside, and the sign on our door of our heart will say we receive, but we don't give. You see, God's system isn't supposed to be like that. You know, just the other day, I, I read an article. This isn't even in my notes, but it just came to my mind. It's that the churches that are exploding with growth right now in America are those who are leaning into a political ideology that's dangerous one way or the other. The churches that preach the gospel and talk about stuff like this, it's a hard message. It's a lot easier to gather with a bunch of people that are just like you, and yet I just don't think that that message saves. I think this message is what changes the world. And like William Booth, it tends to be a message that's rejected for a long, long time, and yet it saves people's souls. Y'all, if we're not careful, we'll become just like that. The church is supposed to be like William Booth, not like England. The church should be a prayer, house of prayer, like Jesus said, for all people. You know what the Greek word all it means in, in Greek? It means all. Like everybody. Like the, the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor. It should be the place where society says you don't belong, and the church says yes, but we have a commonality that's bigger than ourselves. Listen, one of the things I've learned is that God tends to use the most unlikely of people to do the most unlikely of things. So who am I to give up on you? Y'all, Saul. The King Saul was the obvious choice for Israel. He was tall and he was handsome. He was everything that you would ever think. He was strong. He came from the right family. Everything that a, a king should be, and yet God chose David. David was a shepherd boy, the seventh son, and, and literally the, the, the word phrasing, it's the opposite of Saul that the Bible uses for David is that he was more of like an effeminate man. He was like me in South Georgia. <laughs> Y'all shouldn't laugh at that stuff. That's, that's so offensive. Moses had a stuttering problem. He wasn't voted in the yearbook most likely to preach. John the Baptist was a weird tree-hugging hippie that probably went to Cal Berkeley. Y'all, most of the disciples were uneducated rejects and they became God's heroes of the faith. You see, the greatest asset you have in the kingdom of God is your humility and your willingness to be shaped by God and not culture. That's why serving, by the way, matters so much. You, you realize that when you serve here, you actually put, your, you put yourself in a position to be underneath people, underneath people that society might say you're better than. You intentionally empty yourself of your status and your partiality so that you can tell people that I'm not, I am impartial and I want you in this building and you belong to something beautiful. Y'all, go serve someone who doesn't have anything to give you. It's one of the most humbling things, I'm just telling you. It's always been the people 
that nobody thought would make a difference, that make the biggest impact on the kingdom of God. The people that God doesn't use more often than not are the people who, who feel like they have something to contribute. Right, can I just tell you, one of the things we look for most when we look for elders is the people who never asked to be an elder. It's the people who are stacking chairs and walking around and serving and taking out the trash when nobody's looking. You see, because the people who are willing to position themselves in a position of serving, those are the people that God uses. As a matter of fact, today, you, you see on your, on your seat that there's a connect card. Right after this gathering, we, we want to help you get connected to a small group and a serve team. We believe so deeply in this that we don't need more people to serve because we need more servants. We need more people to serve because we believe it benefits your life greatly. I want to ask you boldly to actually scan that QR code right now where you're sitting on your phone and just fill it out. It's two words. Uh, it's two lines, I mean. Your name and what are you interested in serving in. And then take that card and give it to Clayton at the end of this and let us help you get connected. Let us help you get connected. Verse 5. Listen, my brothers. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in the faith and heirs in the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? See, this isn't an absolute statement, but it's absolutely true. This is how God works. God chooses the most unlikely of heroes to be rich in the faith because they don't have anything to give. They just want to receive. I told you this a couple weeks ago. If dependence is the key, then suffering is to your advantage. Emptying yourself is to your advantage because it draws you into God. That's where faith becomes rich. Don't miss what James is saying. James is saying you can have your reward now in this life or you can leverage your life for an eternal heritage that goes way beyond anything that you could ever imagine or dream. The question is, is what kingdom are you ultimately living for? Again, the thread through the entire book of James is this. How you live matters because it reveals the faith that you believe. Church, which kingdom is our lives revealing that we believe? Verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. <laughs> you see, they could say all day long that they believe the gospel, but their actions reveal that they didn't understand it. They didn't understand that they were the poor man that God helped, literally and figuratively. Literally, historians tell us that the first century was almost completely comprised of social out out rejects and poor people. This was a place that the have-nots went when they had nowhere else to go. And, and figuratively, spiritually, the idea is that the gospel is that all of us are spiritually bankrupt without Jesus. They should have known better than anyone that they were doomed without Jesus' grace. And yet, these people, who were the poorest of the poor, still didn't understand it. Y'all, we might not be the poorest people on the planet, literally, but without Jesus, we are just as spiritually bankrupt as anybody that's ever lived. Listen to what he says. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppresses you? The ones who drag you into court? Are, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James is like, by the way, it doesn't even make sense. You're showing partiality to the group of people who killed your Savior and rejected you and made your life a living... I can't say that word, but you know what I'm saying. You don't remember that these were the people that made you refugees, James said? The people that took your houses, these dudes kicked you out. Isn't it funny how we will tend to sacrifice so much just to be in the in crowd? The high schooler, 
a high school that just wants to be liked so much that they sacrifice their morals, they sacrifice their integrity. Maybe they even sacrifice uh, who they are just to be. Sometimes I see it with ladies who sacrifice so much just to be in another social status. Right? We, we, we see this all the time. Some of you sacrifice your family at the altar of your job. You, you let your boss make you work 100 hours a week and you do everything, they, everything that they say all the time and you sacrifice at the altar of your boss at the expense of the kids and the family at home that love you. We tend to do this all the time in very different ways and yet we do it. It's easy to look down on these dudes and be like, I can't believe that you're sacrificing with these people that don't care about you. Do the same thing. We do the same thing all the time. We settle for something less. The temptation is always there. You know, I, I, I tell you this story because I think the statute of limitation has run out on this by now, but I remember when we first started the church, there was a, a family that came to our church. Um, and they, to this day, I still think we're the single highest givers we've ever had. I think at that point, they funded about 40% of our whole budget. Um, and one day, they called me and they asked me to come over and they wanted to have a conversation. And we sat down and the conversation went something like this. We need you to fire so-and-so. And if you don't, we're going to leave. Y'all, I'd love to tell you that I, I was this heroic moment. You know what my thought process was? Man, if I, if I don't do what they say, I don't know if we're going to make payroll, turn on the lights, and like nobody's going to have a job. There's not going to be a church. If I do what they say, they own the church. Like, it was this conundrum of like, why are you acquiescing why are you acquiescing at this point whenever you've got to trust God? And, and, and listen, by the way, ultimately I told them no. There's no way we're doing that. We're going to trust the Lord. You know what happened? They left. The next month, 40% of our budget was made up by new people that came into the church. It was a great lesson that I had to learn. It was a great lesson. Trust the Lord. Now, here, here's the other lesson I learned is it's not easy. It's not easy to do the right thing. It's not easy not to show partiality to those who have. But the reality is we're building a different kind of kingdom. And, and, and listen, I tell you, the reality is we live in a broken world, that the decisions that you make, they're tough. And I'm just telling you, God always rewards the good decisions that you make. And it, not, it might not work out. And we could have just as easily not had a church. And yet at the end of the day, you do what God tells you to do because you're building a different kind of kingdom. You build one that says that, yes, we are spiritually bankrupt and we are in need of the gospel. One that says that even, even you, I don't know who you are, but you are welcome here. Because at the foot of the cross, we are all the same. So it doesn't matter what you bring into this building. You can bring your riches or your baggage and you are welcome with open arms. Because at the end of the day, we are the same family united around the gospel. Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, I love that he says royal law because it's royal because it came from a king. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, scripture is capitalized because it's the Bible, literally the Old Testament here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. Notice that he says sin within, with, it's not plural, it's singular. We'll come back to that. It's a condition, it's not, it's not actions. And you are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. And he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, here's what James is saying. The law can be summed up into two parts. 
Jesus tells you this. The first part is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And the second part is to love your neighbor as yourself. If you ever actually read the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, that Decalogue, it can, be, it can be summed up into two parts. The first four parts are about your vertical relationship with God. The second six parts is about your horizontal relationship with others. It's to love the Lord and to love each other. James's point is that sin is a condition of the heart. When you break any of these commandments, you are a lawbreaker. So I figured it might be good to just do a quick test. Let's just see how we do with the Ten Commandments. Here's the first one. You shall love, you shall have no other gods before me. A lot of us are thinking, I'm good with that. I don't have any idols in my house. I've never worshiped another God. But have you ever put anything before God? Have you ever decided that you weren't going to trust God with your life, your health, or your finances? You'll just do it yourself. Have you ever trusted in anything at any moment in your life more than God, even for a moment? Number two, you shall not make an idol for yourself. I'm sure that none of you have Shiva sitting in your house. But you remember an idol is when you take a good thing and you elevate it to an ultimate thing and then it becomes a God thing. Have you ever wanted something so badly that you sacrificed for it? Have you ever reshaped God, that's what an idol does, into your image? Have you taken what God's word says and twisted to make it matter better or more to you in that moment? Or have you ever taken things out of God's word because it became more palatable to you to digest in that moment? You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. By the way, this is not saying GD, although I don't recommend you doing that. It means that you take the name Christian among yourself and you take it in vain. It'd be like Allison and I getting married. In that moment, she takes my name at the altar and walks away like she's single and does what she does. She did, she took the Lord's, she took, not the Lord's, took my name in vain. I said this last week, when we sin, it's not that we hate God, we just forget him. We just take his name in vain. Number four, you shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Do we even need to talk about this one? Do you perfectly come to church? Do you perfectly rest once a week? Do you give God your first and your best? Do you have a system of your life of rest and renewal that happens all the time? Honor your father and your mother. By the way, this, this more has to do with the way that we submit to authority structures in our lives. Let me just tell you, over the last several years, we've had two presidents in a global pandemic, and I haven't met a single person who has honored their authority structures perfectly. Number six, you shall not murder. Some of you are like, finally, I got that one. Congratulations. Good job. Although, Jesus says, if you've ever murdered anybody in your heart, he talks about the motives. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm driving down 400, I want to murder that guy that just cut me off in traffic, right? Have you ever hated somebody in your heart? Right? You should not commit adultery. Again, think deeper. Jesus said that if you've ever lusted after somebody in your heart, you've committed adultery. You shall not steal. You ever use Venmo to avoid paying your taxes? Pay your babysitter to pay the long guy? You ever steal hours from your company during COVID when you told me you were working but you were actually watching Sports Center? Was that just me? You shall not lie. Some of y'all are lying about the Ten Commandments right now. So we don't need to talk about that. You shall not covet. I mean, we live in Alpharetta. If I take a wrong turn onto Hembry, I covet for about five minutes and I have to turn right back off of it. Y'all, how did you do? If you're anything like me, you're 0 for 10. You get the point. It's really hard to be partial when you realize just how spiritually bankrupt you are and that you need grace. Listen, if you show partiality, what it does is it understands, it reveals that you don't get it. When you're not willing to be patient with people, when you don't give the benefit of the doubt and you only hang out with people who make you better or, or you do the things that you do, you're communicating to the world that you don't get it. So James' final words on this subject are this. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. 
For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You know what the law of liberty is? It's the gospel. See, there is a law that condemns. That is the, that is the Ten Commandments. That is that first law. And yet there is a law that brings life, and that's the gospel, because the gospel says that Jesus kept those laws. He kept the perfect law in your place so that he could substitute his righteousness for your unrighteousness. He kept your perfect record, and uh, he kept his perfect record and took your debt. He gave you mercy. By the way, mercy. Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. And grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. So mercy... Mercy is us not giving people what they might deserve. You see, if you're always quick to judge and you're always basing your life off of things that you think that they deserve, don't you think that you deserve to be judged the same way? There's a better way. There's a better way. It's called mercy. And mercy always triumphs over judgment. I'm just telling you. If you show people mercy, if you give them the benefit of the doubt, if you elevate them, if you show them kindness and grace, if you treat people like they belong no matter what, you build a kingdom, a gospel kingdom, and it's powerful, y'all. The gospel changes everything. When you get the gospel, you become gospel people, and the church will explode in growth. Downward mobility. Downward mobility. It's the key to changing the world. It's the greatest force on the planet because it communicates the gospel. See, it communicates. It communicates that we believe this thing and we've embodied this thing. It paints a picture of what's possible. Can you see it? The story of Jesus. He didn't sit on his throne to judge you. He came off of his throne to serve you. Imagine if that was the picture of all of our lives and everything that we do. We're supposed to be people of high character people of virtue, people of sacrifice, people of service, because we know more than anyone what amazing grace is. Want to change the world. Want to change the world. It's not by creating systems of partiality. It's by rejecting those. They already exist. It's by being like William Booth or Martin Luther King Jr. It's by being like the heroes of our faith who rejected the systems and showed kindness and dignity to everyone around them because they understood that their Lord Jesus Christ died in their place. See, the world needs a picture of the gospel and they need us to paint it for them. That's James' point in James chapter 2. My brother, show no partiality. Like, what kind of kingdom are you building? Are you just resurrecting the old one or do you want to show people that Jesus came for a new thing? City Church, Jesus came for a new thing. And, and it's hard. It takes sacrifice. It takes downward mobility. And yet, it makes a world-changing impact when we get it. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would help us to be people who first understand grace and then extend it to everybody around us. I pray that you would help us to be kingdom people, to be downward mobile people, to be people who are loved by you and show love to others. God, would you help us to make much of you today? In Jesus' name, amen.